Clear prop. Star 73 is Cherokee, number two, following twin traffic, three mile final. There's something One trailer Bravo, Rakesford in runway 25, going uh, four mile final. This is Behind the Prop with United Flight Systems owner and licensed pilot Bobby Doss and his co host, major airline captain and designated pilot examiner Wally Mulhern. Now, let's go Behind the Prop. What's up, Wally? Hey, Bobby, how are you? I am fantastic. This is uh, a continuation of the show we did last week. This is all about systems in a single-engine trainer, the, all the planes that we fly to teach in and the planes that you do most of your check rides in. Uh, we, we've talked about it many, many times, but the systems, the whole systems conversation is, is a weak one for general aviation pilots, and hopefully we're we're going to share some wisdom and some information and really just challenge listeners, I think, to dive in a little bit deeper to Section 7 of their POH and learn more about their systems. Um, I think I asked the same question last week, but how how well do students do when you ask systems questions or applicants do when you ask systems questions? Uh, it, it, it's all over the place. Um, and, uh, you know, Obviously, if if you pass, you you meet the standards. Um, but um, I think this is all something that we could we could do a better job with. Um, you know, understanding. You know, when you pull that yoke back, what are you doing other than making the airplane pitch up if you have enough airspeed? Um, you know, what are you really doing? Are you are you moving the trim tab are you moving the horizontal stabilizer are you pulling a cable what are you doing and it really it's it's you know it's not rocket science i mean to to dovetail off our our show from a while back where we actually talked to an astronaut you know little airplanes are not rocket science what are we doing when we do everything when we flip a switch on what are we doing you know uh are we are we uh um, you know, what are we turning on? What is it actually doing when we pull that flap handle up? How are those flaps going up? What's making them going out? Is it is it driving a motor that's making the flaps go out, or is it just pulling a cable? And you know, I think I think you you get into bigger airplanes, the systems become more complex. So it's a building block. So uh, if we start learning. The systems in our, our Warrior or our, our 172 or, or what, whatever the, the small airplane may be, um, we're setting the, the groundwork for learning that now we're going to learn the systems of the Beach uh, Baron or the Travel Air. Now we're going to learn the systems in a Cessna Caravan. Now we're going to learn the systems in a, a, you know, a, a, a light, a, a small jet and, uh, you know, onto a big jet um you know when when we we talked to kevin ford uh a while back on the show the astronaut i was asking him about um you know i says well what what's ground school like on the space shuttle and he he just kind of laughed he said because they would spend two weeks two weeks on each system usually wow you know and uh, I'm I'm guessing on a space shuttle, there's a whole bunch of systems. Um, yeah, I would say there are. Yeah, so um, 
you know, of course you get up to space and you don't, uh, you know, your, your options are limited. So that, that's why. But, um, you know, I think we could do a better job in general aviation. You don't think my mechanic would just swing by and fix something in space? I think that yeah. you're very limited for sure. Yeah, imagine the bill for that. Yes. the last, So last week we talked a lot about the a, a number of different systems, the flight controls, kind of the airframe in general. We talked a little bit about the flaps and those sorts of things. And then we really just ran out of time because we were talking about even how control locks work and the difference between how you use a seatbelt and a piper versus a control lock. Uh, for the yoke and then bigger planes have more control locks and more removed before flight red tags right so this week we're just going to kind of continue the conversation and talk about things and we've talked a, a lot about engines in the past we did a whole show on engines in the past we talked a lot about engine naming last week but we talked about fuel and some of those things about fuel and how fuel works uh, i thought we'd just continue on the list and we talked a little bit about props um I don't think I spent enough time learning about a prop. You, you've always talked about how you know how long yours was when you were a student because you read the POH. But what's the difference uh, at a high level that you, uh, both a professional pilot and an examiner, would expect someone to really understand about props at a commercial level? Well, at, you know, at a commercial level, you you're going to have some. Uh, complex time or technically advanced time and so uh, you're going to have uh, a a uh, some time in an airplane where the the you're able to, to change the pitch of the propeller just a funny story i uh, was talking to a, an airline pilot a few weeks ago and um, um, he was he had let his CFI expire and he wanted to get it renewed. And I told him that, um, I didn't have the ability to, to do that as an examiner, but, um, and he was somehow, he, he felt the need to tell me about his, the amount of flight time that he had. And he says, well, I got, uh, 20, you know, 27,000 hours, um, 25,000 of it is in a complex airplane. And I pointed out to him that by definition, that the 787 that he flies is, well, okay, back in the day, I should say, prior to, to the rules being changed. But back in the day, uh, a 787 was not a complex airplane because it did not have a controllable pitch propeller. And um, I guess the, the, the definition of complex airplane still remains the same. You got to have a controllable pitch propeller, retractable landing gear, and movable flaps. And so, uh, seven eight seven does not meet the uh, the the definition of a complex airplane. But having said that, um, yeah, I I would expect an applicant to understand. Um, in a general sense, the inner workings of, of a propeller. I remember as a, a young kid, my, my, my father um, built a lot of model airplanes. I mean, and, and, and in my, my house and down in the basement, we had a display case. And in that display case was, was probably, oh, 130, 140 model airplanes. And over in the corner, what we had is we had a, a uh, model of a rotary airplane engine that had a propeller on it, and the propeller, um, you could actually change the pitch of the propeller. 
And this this was a very this is a big model of a of an engine. It was probably uh, fourteen inches uh, diameter, and the 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 diameter of the prop was was probably a little bit longer than that, maybe sixteen inches. And I remember my father at, as at a very young age, him showing me how that propeller moved, the the blade angle of the propeller moved. And the way he explained it to me, he said, this is how an airplane changes gears. Just like we shift from first to second to third to fourth gear in a car, this is the way an airplane changes gears, is by changing the angle of the blade of the propeller. And uh, to this day, I've, been, I've gone all over the Internet trying to find that model to build it because it, uh, it, it, it was a light bulb moment for me, and I, I don't know how old I was. I was probably eight to ten years old when it happened. But I remember going and playing with that model all the time and moving the blade angle of the propeller, and that that's that is was my introduction to it. So, I mean, it's it's a pretty complex system, no pun intended, right? That you now have a prop control on top of the mixture and uh, the throttle. They all look pretty similar, except they're different colors. Um, but, but it's also even in a fixed pitch, the prop kind of twists, and that twist is pretty important. And I had a pretty good instructor that walked me through it. And if you also, in conjunction with this podcast, go read Chapter 7 of the Pilot Handbook of Aeronautical Knowledge, there's a, there's a few pages on props, and it has a really good dissection of the prop and how really – it's the angle of attack by which the blade is striking the air, right? Changes throughout that twist and how much, um, how thick and how much of that prop is going to hit it. What I find interesting about a fixed pitch prop, it's moving almost three times as fast on the outer edge as it is from the from 10 inches out from the middle of the prop, right? So if you went right. from the center of the nose cone to 10 inches out, the prop is moving about 130 knots in the circular motion while it makes one revolution the very tip of the prop is moving almost 400 knots um so it's traveling a much longer greater distance but it's still only turning the same rpm count as the other inside part is right so the the way that blade's designed and made over years and years of testing is so that it works equally both in the middle and at the far tip of the prop um, which provides the same amount of actual lift but it's actual thrust right so uh what yeah. moves us through the air pretty cool to understand that but you should understand it and then if you don't know a lot um you should understand that the prop also can't have much inconsistency because we don't want it to be imbalanced right so right. in a training environment we we want to check and in a non-training environment you want to check and make sure there's not any dings or scratches or things that would create something to to be unbalanced or the smallest of crack you got to think if there's one thing that takes more force on it than anything on an airplane it is the prop you got to think it's pulling 2000 pounds through the air it's taking a whole whole lot of uh force as it moves us through the air so you don't want any any indentations or any dents or any cracks it's going to cause a big problem for sure yeah and i think one thing that most of us can probably relate to is is a ceiling fan um 
you know, just just imagine a ceiling fan in your living room. I mean, if if you've ever gone in a room and you see a ceiling fan that is just uh, vibrating, you know, it you know uncontrollably, it's it's because that ceiling fan is unbalanced somehow, um, and you know that's what we get if if we take a chunk out of a propeller um, on the surface. It may not look like a big deal, but you take that. Uh, you know, the speed at which the tip of that propeller is moving around, and that propeller may be now significantly unbalanced, and, uh, you know, a, a unwanted vibration in the air is something that we don't want. Yeah, and I've had, like, a, where you could tell a piece of gravel might have jumped up and hit the prop and put a pretty good little ding in the leading edge. Just like you wouldn't want a big ding in the leading edge of your wing, you don't want a ding in the leading edge of your prop. And called my mechanic and uh, very nicely ran down and took a file and filed it off and made it made it to where it was safe and put a logbook entry in the logbook and away we go. Right? Um, yeah. There's tolerances on a prop like everything else in aviation, and they're they're meant to to have those fixes in real time like that for sure. Yeah. Yeah, and and you mentioned this. I mean, I I, I distinctly remember sitting in uh, in an aerodynamics class in college, and uh, 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 it, was, it was another light bulb moment for me. I mean, the the instructor he he never would say wing, uh, you know, it was always airfoil, 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 and uh, then he pointed out that a propeller was nothing more than rotating wings. And uh, I just thought, wow, yeah, okay, it is, it is. There's an angle of attack of a, of the propeller, and so yeah, you know, you don't want a, the front of your wing to be dinged, just like you don't want the front of your propeller to be dinged. That's right. They are both just airfoils for sure. Um, next, I guess we we talked about the fuel quite a bit last year, last week, so we'll skip that. We've had an electrical system conversation, but let's dive into some components that I think are misinterpreted or misinformed. You know, I again have a flight school with 15 or so aircraft, varying models of Pipers and Cessnas, um, very similar, but also have their, their differences. I think people misinterpret or misclassify a voltmeter and an ammeter. Have you ever seen anybody? call a voltmeter an ammeter or an ammeter a voltmeter and is there a difference Wally oh yeah yeah there's there's definitely a a, a difference you know a, a voltmeter is gonna ma- measure the, the the voltage on a on a battery we go up to any battery and put a voltmeter on it and measure the voltage right now where an ammeter is is basically um the way we use it it's it's I guess a, a way of thinking of it is is output of the alternator, which is the battery charger. Okay, yep. you know we we have all these fancy words, but um, think of the alternator as as the battery char- charger, if you will. So I've had a number. Well, two things. Rewind real quick. You should know what voltage your system is in your aircraft, and I don't think. Oh yeah. I don't yes. think I knew that. Honestly, I don't think I knew that till I owned the flight school, and. You just you're not really taught that, and um, there were Cessnas that were built, Cessna 172s that were built that are 14 volts, or sometimes referred to as 12 volts. We'll get to that in a second. Some that are 28 volts, or sometimes referred to as 24 volt systems. 
Pipers, almost all Pipers are 14-volt systems. Um, but you can find it in the very front of your POH, and you should know how many volts you're supposed to have. Jumping back to the ammeter-voltmeter conversation, a lot of times we'll have a, a renter come back inside after they get in the airplane and start it and say, the, you're, the alternator is just not charging it to zero amps on the amp meter. And there's a reason why it could be zero. It could be right on zero. Uh, could It's an analog gauge, so it could look like it's right on zero when it's just above zero. But that just means there's a significant load drawing on that system. Um, maybe I have all the lights on. Maybe I'm doing my pre-flight. And I've got, you know, I had all my strobes, my nav, my beacon, my radios, all that stuff on. It might not be able to charge faster than it's draining, I guess, is what's happening at zero. Um, but if I had a voltmeter... The voltmeter would tell me exactly what's coming out of the alternator. And the difference between 12 and 14 or 24 and 28 is that the alternator puts out a couple extra volts uh, of charge to, I guess, outrun the other voltage that's in the battery, right? So if it's 12-volt battery, the alternator probably is putting out 14 volts. And that way, if you have a voltmeter, what would it tell you? Well, if you got in a plane started it and the voltmeter was telling you 12 volts what would that tell you well it would tell you that the the uh it's not being charged at this point that's right i got an alternator problem would you go in that situation like let's say it's night flight imc starts playing it's 12 volts you're indicating on a voltmeter would you go would not go absolutely (laughs) not not. go that is a no-go choice people and so i think sometimes people say well it's a 12-volt system. It says 12 volts. So, yeah, I've got 12 volts. But I think this is what I'm talking about when I say practical knowledge of these systems is the alternator is putting out 14 volts. Your 12-volt system should say 14 volts if you have a voltmeter. And if you have an if you only have an ammeter, then it's probably going to say somewhere between zero and an indication of about half because it's about the draw and can it char- I'll charge that. If it was below zero... It's going to indicate that there's the system's using more than it can be charged, and I would not go in that situation as well. Um, you might be getting a little bit of charge, but it's probably not enough, or you have a bad battery, something like that. Right, right. And I, you know, something I I bring up on check rides is that usually, as I'm I'm sitting in the room with the applicant, I have my uh, I have my phone, and and it's dependent on on how many check rides I've done that day. A lot of times my phone is plugged in and it's being charged. And the applicant sitting across to me will usually have their phone and it's sitting there on the table. And more times than not, their phone is not being charged. And I will say to them, are you experiencing an alternator failure right now with your phone? And, and they look at me a little little strange. And uh, the, the point that I'm trying to make is that they are. They are experiencing an alternator failure as we're sitting there because their phone is not being charged. I'll pick up my phone and it's got a little white cord hanging out from from underneath going into the wall and I'll say, is my phone experiencing an alternator failure right now? And then they start to get it and they'll say, oh yeah, I, I understand. Your phone is not experiencing an alternator failure. I am. And, and I say, exactly, exactly. I said, so... We manage, in everyday life, we manage alternator failures. We do it with our, our, our telephones, our phones in our pocket. 
you know, if you're going to be gone away from uh, a power source for 14, 16 hours, we probably need to manage that phone. We need to do something. We need to turn it off or put it in airplane mode or close out some apps or something like that. Turn off, turn off the GPS on it to save electricity. So we, we do this. We do it every day and we don't even think about it. Yeah, and that's a good point on really how you might report a squawk with the electrical system to your flight school or an FBO. You know, that phone might be plugged in and have the cable in the phone and the phone's not charging. That doesn't mean that the alternator's bad. That means something in that system's bad, which could be the wall plug, it could be the power coming to that plug, it could be a wire to that plug. There could be a lot of different things. I think what your fly school wants to know or your FBO wants to know is that I wasn't getting an indication that my alternator was charging and then they'll go troubleshoot where the loose wire is or what's loose. I think when we did our alternator show, we had a a full electrical outage on an aircraft shortly thereafter and it wasn't the alternator at all. It was the wire on the back of the alternator had come loose. Um, And it, it just in, just goes to show that it's not always maybe the system, but part of that system that is indicating there's an issue. And and with, with that in mind, if, if you do, whether it's owner-owned airplane or rental airplane or, or whatever, if you do have a, a situation like that where you think something's wrong, man, a picture is worth a thousand words. Snap a picture of it. If it's something that's transient that's coming and going, take a short video of it. And uh, come in and, and show it to the, 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 you know, the mechanic or the, the, the owner of the airplane. Say, this is what I had. And, uh, man, that, that really helps. It definitely does. And to, those, to that point, I guess, but still around the alternator, let's talk about some switches. Like most of these trainers have three on-off switches, I'll call it. We've normally got a master switch that um, also has an alternator switch as part of it. And then we normally have a avionics switch. If you're lucky, you have an avionics switch. Um, what's the difference between the on-off switch and the alternator switch, I guess, Wally? Well, you know, most airplanes are going to have a, a battery switch. One, one half of the master switch is the battery switch, and the other half of the switch is the actual alternator itself. And that way we have the ability just to isolate the electrical system. We may be, uh, we may have a, uh, an alternator that is, is producing too much voltage, maybe, uh, or, or, or not enough. It's, it's malfunctioning. Um, so we typically have the ability to turn the alternator off, remove the alternator from the electrical system, uh, now we have a airplane that is being electrically powered just by the battery. And how much battery time do we have? Well, uh, I, I get a lot of times, well, we're, you're guaranteed 30 minutes. Well, <laughs> people, you're not guaranteed anything. Uh, you might have 30 minutes. Heck, you might have two hours. You might have 10 minutes. I don't know. You have something less than infinity. And you have something more than zero. That's that's what I can tell you. Now, uh, you know, in a perfect world, um, yeah, you're supposed to have a minimum of 30 minutes. Um, but 
if we can conserve electricity, you might have more than that. Um, and is it an emergency? Well, it depends. It might be. In uh, IMC conditions, yeah, I would say it's an emergency. Um, you, need to, you need to get the airplane on the ground. Uh, VMC conditions where you're going on a three-hour flight, um, it might be in the best interest and it might be safe to continue. There are actually airplanes that don't have electrical systems. We have, you know, older airplanes, Piper Cubs that are flying around. They do not have an electrical system. You have to hand prop the prop to get it going, to get the engine going. And uh, there's nothing in the airplane that's electrical. Yeah, that would be fun to fly and interesting to teach about because um, most might be shocked how those things work. Yeah. And then the the avionics switch really is, is almost a uh, something where we use to protect the avionics from uh, maybe an over voltage or something when we're starting the aircraft or um, initially turning that key and that alternator fires up. We, we're trying to, I guess, isolate the avionics so that we don't overpower that bus and uh, cause any damage to our expensive radios and or yeah. audio panel. So if you happen to pull the mixture out too far while taxing, you really need to be diligent using your checklist and go through the uh, the start procedures, shutdown procedures, and the start procedures again to make sure you're protecting that equipment in that uh, cockpit as well, for sure. Yeah, and, and most of these airplanes, the you know a, a lot of the airplanes that that I fly around, and the the avionics is fifty percent of the value of the airplane. No, no um, question. Or, yeah. You know, and and so. Um, you know, in a lot of the, the airplanes, the procedure for a perceived alternator failure is to reset the alternator. And you do that by turning it off and turning it back on. However, before you do that, most of the airplanes will tell you to turn the avionics master switch off. So if there is some sort of a, a, a spike, uh, you won't fry your expensive radios. Yeah. No question. Now, as we're recording this, you misspoke a little bit. The fuel tanks are the most valuable pieces of equipment in an aircraft right now as fuel continues to skyrocket. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. I saw a little video last night on the social media channels that I watched, and there was a guy packaging little bundles of gas and weighing them as if he was going to sell them like crack cocaine. It was quite comical. Um, Yeah, fuel's very expensive right now. Yeah, At I our saw home airport, somebody... it went up 75 cents a gallon in, on March 9th. So wow. a 14% increase in one day. Wow. I, I saw somebody post a, a, a picture, and again, social media, and it's, um, it's, it's like a husband and a wife, and they're, they're – um, they're, they're at a desk. They're signing papers, and they say, we just closed on our loan to buy gas for the cars. There you go. <laughs> I hope we don't get to that point. That's going to be worse for sure. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about lights. Uh, these aircraft all have, most of them all have some form of lighting systems. Um, I can think of, we probably have a switch for nav lights. We probably have a switch switch for anti-collision uh, or strobe lights. We probably have a beacon light bulb. We probably have um, a taxi light, maybe a landing light. Um Maybe an interior light, 
that's probably all the lights we have on most of these trainers. Um, the new wave of the future is going to be LED. I love my aircraft with LED lights. If I lose a non-LED light, I'm probably replacing with an LED light. Much more durable. Probably lasts forever. And doesn't take near the power to run it, right? So as you talked guarantees on battery a while ago, if you're running a system that's all LEDs, you probably are going to get a lot more out of that battery than if you're running a bunch of incandescent light bulbs all the way around your aircraft as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, as we talk about lights, I, I remember back in my early days of beginning to fly charter, um, we had uh, the company I worked for had two Beechcraft Barons and one Beechcraft Duchess. And when I was going through a little two-day ground school about a Beechcraft Baron, one thing that the instructor was very adamant about, he said, um, you need to be very aware of if anything is hot wired to the battery and what he meant is is there any system on the airplane that you can turn on and it will come on without the master switch being on and his point was um you know in some of these airplanes uh they have baggage compartments and they have lights in the baggage compartment and guess what those lights are normally hot-wired to the battery. And I ran into this with my Saratoga, uh, I don't know, a year, year and a half ago. And um, we had a dead battery. Had a dead battery in the Saratoga. So I, I got the mechanic to, to order a new battery, which wasn't cheap. And uh, he installed it and everything. And we went out and the airplane started up just fine. And life was good. We put the airplane in the hangar and uh, came back about 10 days later, pulled the airplane out, went to start it, and it would not start. Did you throw and the I first think, battery away, Wally? No, no, okay. but I did. I did go down to the, the shop and, and say to my mechanic, I say, hey, I just spent $800 on a battery and it, it doesn't work. And so they came down and, and the uh Saratoga is a 12-volt system. We are able to jumpstart it and get it going. And uh, what we determined was that the airplane, and I, I didn't even know it, but the our airplane does have a baggage light. And guess what? That light was on. Um, the, the, the last trip that we flew, um, we had things in the baggage compartment, and as we pulled it out, Somebody inadvertently hit that switch, and so for 10 days, a little bitty light in the baggage compartment drained the battery. So something, you know, that's a light that we normally don't think about as baggage compartment lights, but that's, that was um, pretty, a pretty important lesson. So I've since removed the bulb from the light, so uh, even if we hit the switch, it won't be an issue. Yeah, this interesting read I had lately was an interpretation of of the of a lighting system where if the beacon, uh, if you have beacons and strobes, they can either be independent of one another or they can be one system. And the FAA says if any three of those lights are out, if they're one system, meaning one strobe light or the beacon out, then that can't be flown legally because it's part of the anti-collision uh, and the anti-collision system, right? Whereas if they are separate, 
Um, you could fly without the strobes uh, because you do have a red flashing beacon light. And uh, some of the newer, I think our 182 has a system that it's all in one. And so if we lose one of those bulbs, we have to replace it before we can fly that aircraft during day or night operations because of that interpretation letter. So uh, you need to know your systems. You need to know your aircraft and you need to know the rules and interpretations of those rules um, because that sparked a good debate amongst instructors and and, uh, maintenance before we found that interpretation letter. And I think there's, there's inconsistency on the naming of lights. We talk about um, uh, uh, nav lights. Well, the FAA calls them position lights. Anti-collision lights. Well, a, a beacon. Uh, sometimes we call it a rotating beacon. Sometimes it's called a flashing beacon. That's an anti-collision light. A strobe light is an anti-collision light. Sometimes they're labeled anti-collision. Sometimes they're labeled strobes. Mm-hmm. And it's important to know which switch is controlling which one and which ones you should have on and must have on uh, for legal operations as well during the times that you're flying yeah. that aircraft. And it, in a lot of airplanes, I, I, I know for a fact the Pipers, when you turn on uh, some of the position lights... Uh, it's Piper's way of saying it must be nighttime. So then the the three green gear lights uh, are dimmer because yes. they think it's nighttime. So uh, you land and you leave the light switch on and you shut down the airplane and you go about your business and you come back the next day, you get in the airplane and uh, it looks like you don't have three green gear lights well it's because your nav lights are on because the airplane thinks it's night yeah that should be called the uh 200 uh dimmer switch those the little wheel in pipers because lots of people go out and they get in that piper arrow of ours and they start it up and they they say well i ain't got three green lights i'm not flying today so they shut down the plane come inside and very often i can walk out there and demonstrate to them that if I roll that wheel up and it clicks, we're going to get three green lights. So, uh, yeah, again, yeah. just another part of the systems that we need to understand and know how they work better. Right. Um, right. We cover a lot about the pedostatic during training because it's such an uh, integral part of learning. So I, I think we can skip that one or do a whole nother show on maybe the, uh, pedostatic and the vacuum systems. One interesting part about the vacuum system that I've learned in the last few years is that I, I I never, I guess I always thought the vacuum system was a, a gyro that you, that was being blown into. Right. But the vacuum system actually is a suction um, and it's being pulled, the air is being pulled through it and there's a regulator on the other side so that it can't pull too fast and blow that, blow that gyro up or spin it too fast. Um, So that's an interesting fact about the vacuum system is that it is a, suck pull system that has a regulator just in front of that to make sure that the air comes through at a certain pace um, to keep that within its green arc uh, for for suction stall warning horn maybe most don't know some maybe know but it's actually a suction as well so the way you really test and the poh here this old poh i'm reading says put a clean cloth over the suction port or the 
the uh, Stallhorn port and suck softly and hear the whistle blow. Um, you're probably not going to catch me doing that. They do sell little uh, handheld suction devices that you can test your vacuums with, or sorry, your uh, stall horns with. But uh, normally if you look in there and there's a little bit of plastic looking whistle in there, it's probably going to operate fine. But we have had those fail as well and had to have those replaced. So it is the, the airflow is coming over that wing, creating a vacuum there, and it is actually sucking it to make that uh, stall horn go off. If it's right. if it's a manual, I guess there are electrics that have a switch that you can test as well. Yeah. Any other systems in these single engine small aircraft that we fly, Wally, that you think is just not understood or known well? Uh, you know, I I I mentioned earlier. Um, you know, I I think it's um, maybe the 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 trim tab system. Um, you know, what are you actually moving when you're trimming uh, nose up? Which way are you trimming that? And um, uh, is that a uh, – it's kind of graduate level, yep. 172, I would say. Um, but that that's kind of nice to know. I, I, I know uh, flight school that I worked at, uh, my very first CFI job, we had Cessna 150s, and the back of those airplanes just have a – on the rudder, they have a rudder trim tab, and it's a manual piece of aluminum. And the way you would put it in the right position is you would bend it, you'd get in the airplane and see if the airplane flew straight and level and coordinated. And if it didn't, you came down, you bent it a little more, and you got back in the airplane. And, and we used to have uh, students all the time that would, um, you know, new students, they would go out and they would say... Uh, Hey, this this piece of metal on the back of the rudder was was bent, so I I just reached up and I bent it back. I fixed it for you, and you we would just roll our eyes and think, oh no, no, it's going to take another eight to ten flights to get that thing in the exact right position because it's co- compensating a little bit for some of the the inherent turning tendencies of the airplane. Yes, I hate when anybody says they went and bent something to help me. Yeah, um, that's yeah. never, never really a good thing. Uh, right. For sure. Well, again, another good episode on systems. Hopefully, we're making you better, smarter pilots. Uh, these were all on single engine aircraft that uh, hopefully will benefit the majority of our listeners today. As always, fly safe and stay behind the prop. Thanks for checking out the Behind the Prop podcast. Be sure to click subscribe and check us out online at BehindTheProp.com. Behind the Prop is recorded in Houston, Texas. Creator and host is Bobby Doss. Co-host is Wally Mulhern. The show is for entertainment purposes only and is not meant to replace actual flight instruction. Thanks for listening, and remember, fly safe. Fly safe.